Well, Jesus, I don't know what that means. So we're just not gonna talk about it today. <laughs> this morning, um, I wanna show you a, a quick picture here in just a second. Um, some of you know that I'm a, I'm a fan of, of golf and this was, this was sent to me not too long ago, uh, this, this picture here. I think, I think we've got it upstairs. Maybe not. Yes. Preaching with a manuscript, preaching without notes. For the five of you who know what's going on in this picture, the, uh, the gentleman on the left, that is none other than Tiger Woods, the, the classiest one to ever, to ever play the game. Uh, legend, legend Tiger Woods. Uh, on the right is an individual named John Daly one of the most eccentric to ever play the game. Uh, I think at his round, uh, Dr. Steve, maybe you can help me, uh, his round that he played here in Tulsa at the, the uh, PGA Championship, the stat line on John Daly after his round wasn't like his score, wasn't how many greens in regulation he hit or fairways, it, it was how many packs of cigarettes he smoked, uh, which was like six in his round, how many uh, like Diet Cokes he drank and how many packs of M&Ms he ate throughout his whole round. So somebody sent this to me knowing that I, um, almost to a fault, I, I teach with a manuscript, like I've gotta have this thing written down in front of me. And I, I got to this morning and I realized, today I've gotta be John Daly. <laughs> So we're gonna see where exactly this leads us today. Um, I wish I could have found those pants because it would have made all of this just that much more exciting. One of the things that I, uh, I'm really grateful for about Sanctuary, and this is something that we've talked about, something that I, I think is, is felt and known about our community, is we have left room within our understanding of who God is, within our expression of worship, we have left room here for suffering. To acknowledge the ways that life can be painful, life can be full of traumatic events, life can be full of things not going the way we want them to go. And that's kind of an odd position to take, especially in a place like, like Tulsa, Tulsa ends up being the kind of word of faith capital of the universe, right? That if things are not going well for you, what we've been taught in so many of our circles, that if things are not going well for you, you must not have enough faith. That if, if, if suffering and pain is a part of your life, it's either because God wants it to be happening to you or because you don't have the faith to make it not so. And some of us have been taught these kinds of ideas explicitly. Some of us have just implicitly picked up on some of these ideas that if God was really present in your life, things would not go as poorly as they are. But for anybody who's been alive for five minutes knows life is more complicated than that. It just is. Remember that story of the blind man and the disciples say to him, to, to Jesus, hey Jesus, 
who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus is like, what? You've got the, you've got the whole equation wrong. It wasn't this man's sin, it wasn't his parents' sin that made him blind. He said he was born blind so that the glory of God may be revealed through him. Think about that. So part of what I wanna suggest today, and I promise I'm not trying to take long today, famous last words. What I wanna suggest to us today is that for us to have room in our understanding of God, for us to have room in our practice of worship for something like suffering, it's gonna require something different of us. And what it's going to require is a new kind of understanding of power. So I wanna take us to uh, one of our texts for today, not the gospel, but this is, this is out of 2 Timothy. And here, Paul is writing to Timothy and Paul knows there's this kind of looming reality for him. Paul knows he's moving toward martyrdom. That right now it feels like the inevitable thing that's going to happen for Paul is he's going to die. And so he's writing this letter to Timothy, specifically telling him, preparing him for this reality, that things are not gonna go the way that we want them to go. And so you, Timothy, need to kind of buckle up. Like the responsibility is gonna be on you to keep doing the kind of work that I've been called to do. So he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will for the promise of life in Christ Jesus to Timothy, my dearly loved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now right away, we should pause. I mean, what kind of faith makes it possible for us to welcome others who are about to move into a season of uncertainty, a season of insecurity, a season of loss, while you yourself know you are the loss, your life is coming to an end with some kind of inevitability. All of this is coming to a close. And to say to someone else, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father. He says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience as my ancestors did when I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Now, a lot of us know (laughs) what it is to tell someone else, hey, I'm praying for you, which usually is code for what? Like, I thought about you one time. Praying for you, uh, you kind of came to mind for me the other day and I thought, oh yeah, that person. But I think as, as, as I'm hopefully maturing, getting older, raising children, I think we, we, we start to realize what it is to actually pray with some sense of, of unceasing kind of prayer for the people that we care about. That as we live our lives day to day, because we are so much more aware of the uncertainties of life, that as we think about our friends, as we think about our own children and our families, the people that we love, we carry in ourselves this kind of unceasing prayer for God's love in their lives, for God's mercy in their lives, God's protection, whatever that means to be present in their lives. This is the kind of space Timothy occupies in Paul's heart. 
And he says, remembering your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Clearly recalling your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois, then in your mother Eunice, and that I am convinced is in you also. So here Paul is mentioning to Timothy this presence of God in your life, the work that God is doing in your life. It's not just in you. It is in you. But it started in your mother and in your grandmother. Interesting, when we see these kinds of lineages play out in scripture, who is it that are usually, usually named, usually mentioned? It's, it's, it's the men, right? It's the patriarchs, the people who are passing on these lineages. And Paul is saying, no, 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 it's these women who have stewarded faith in you and made your faith possible. So much so that now you can continue in that work that God is doing in the world. This is, we talked about this in our, our, our Sunday school class today, so if you want to kind of get on the inside scoop, show up to Sunday school at 9 a.m. But we, we talked about this way that we, we don't like this idea that, that somehow our faith had to be made possible by somebody else's faith. This is, this is the idea of what we would call a, a mediated faith. Mediated faith means somehow, in some way, I need the faith of other people in order for my faith to be possible. Now, usually we have kind of strange hierarchical uh, ideas about, about things like mediation. Usually mediation for us feels like a way of, of navigating conflict and you need some kind of third party to help you sort it all out, right? I think mediation looks more like that story in the Gospels where Jesus is, is in the home and he's teaching and the house is filled with people and there's a crowd that's been gathered outside. And remember, there's those four people who have picked up their brother and they've carried him to the house, lifted him up onto the roof, cut a hole in the roof and then lower him down to Jesus. That's what a mediated faith really is. That's what Paul's talking about to Timothy, that all of us have been carried to Jesus by somebody else. None of us made it here by ourselves. None of us made it here on our own. And the reality for us is that we all owe debts to people that we will never be able to repay. That someone at some time, at some point in history, lived a life of faith that has made our living in faith possible. Paul goes on. He says, for God, no, let me back up a little bit. He says, I remind you, keep ablaze the gift of God that is in you, that's coming through you by the laying on of hands. And then this verse, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, one of love, and one of sound judgment. God has not given us a spirit of fear. We've heard this verse. Um, this was the first verse that I had kind of a strange experience with as, as, a, as a kid. Um, you know, when you're around church people and you're hearing texts read, you're hearing texts taught, there's this weird thing that happens where something just kind of gets stuck in you and then there comes a time when it, it wells up and comes back out of you and you don't know where that thing came from or why you remembered that thing. But I have this distinct memory as a kid 
when I was getting ready for bed, I was maybe five years old, getting ready for bed, and my mom brought in my nightlight to the room to like plug it in. And I remember, I don't know where this came from, but I looked at my mom and I said, I don't need that nightlight. God has not given me a spirit of fear. <laughs> and she looked at me like, where did that come from? Like, how did you get a hold of that random verse out of Second Timothy, right? And I don't know, to this day, I don't know who taught me. God has not given me a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love and power and faithfulness. Sound judgment. <laughs> so, read the Bible to your kids. It might actually stick. So God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and sound judgment. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. He's saying there's gonna be a lot of insecurities here as I leave and you step up into this place in the ministry. He's saying you shouldn't be ashamed. Don't be insecure. Don't let anybody make you feel less than. Step up into the place that God has called you. And then he says this. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel. Suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. We as a community, we know what it is to leave room for suffering. We know what it is to, to name it. We know what it is to grieve it, to mourn it. We, every week, we get to this point in our services where we pray the prayers of the people and what are those prayers full of? We are naming suffering. We're naming those things in our world and in our lives and in the lives of those who are, who are dear to us, those things that are not yet right. And what wells up in us is this cry, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We're not people who stray away from suffering. We can face it. We've gotten that far. But what is it to embrace suffering but rely on the power of God? I think, and what I want to offer today in just a few minutes, what I think we need is a, is a new kind of framework for what God's power in our lives actually looks like. Because for most of us, we think that if God's power were really present in our lives, then we would, be, we would be free of suffering. If God's power was working in our lives, we wouldn't be experiencing pain and disappointment. Power in our framework has more to do with, with controlling the world. <laughs> power for us is, is a way of controlling outcomes, a way of getting other people to do for us what we want them to do. This is how we've understood power. And we've also understood power in terms of a, a kind of sliding scale. That there are some who have little power and then there are some with more power and then there's God with the most power. God is not the one with the most power among other beings who are also powerful or powerless. God is the source of power itself. 
So any kind of power we experience in our lives, any kind of the power of God that we experience, it's not because we exist somewhere on this sliding scale. It's because God is making it possible. So for us, as we read a text like, join with me in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God, means that we have to think about power in different terms. We have to think about God's power in our lives as enabling us to be a kind of people, not for us to be protected from certain kinds of things. And here's the thing about about God and God's power, is that we need God to be all-powerful. And we need God to be all-powerful at all times. This is what we need from God. Because if God's power is conditional, if it can be conditioned by anything else in the world, if there are things that can happen that can take away God's power, and if there are things that can happen that can add to God's power, life itself ceases to be grace. If God's power is not working at 11, all the time in our lives, life is not grace. If there are things that can happen in the world that can actually tear down or build up God's power, what kind of power does God have? If he's left to the whims of creation, that's not how God works in our lives. Life is grace. God's activity in your life is grace. And God is always, always, always acting. There is no, the church has said, there is no potential in God. There is nothing that God could be that God is not already. There's nothing that God God could be doing that God's not already doing. God is, is sheer act, sheer action. There's never a time in which God is not moving towards you, in which God's power is not working through you. And this is one of the the small but key distinctions that we have to make, is that we like to think about God's power working for us, but God's power has been promised to work in us. There's this line in Ephesians that, is really familiar to us. We use it oftentimes as a, as a benediction or a blessing at the end of times of prayer, at the end of services, that simply says, glory to God, whose power working in you can do infinitely more than you can ask or imagine. Glory to God from generation to generation in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Now what's happening in this moment when Paul's writing this to the church at Ephesus is there's all of this interpersonal conflict. There are the Jews and there are the Gentiles and they're not getting along. And Paul's saying a life of faith, a community of faith is possible here. And then he ends this whole letter by saying it's gonna happen this way, by God's glory, by his power working in you. Now, what is he saying? All of these impossible relationships, 
all of those broken connections in your life, all of those people that you think you've lost, all of those divisions that you've created for yourself, God can heal even those things, but it's gonna come as a result of God's power working in you, not for you. What's he saying? He's saying that if those relationships can be mended, it's because the power I'm able to put in you is the power to turn the other cheek. It's the power to forgive your enemies. It's the power to love those who curse you. It's the power to walk the extra mile. This is the way that God's power shows up in our lives. And this is the way that our divisions can be mended. This is the way that the broken relationships in our lives can be healed and made whole. It's not gonna be because God's power overwhelms other people. It's not gonna be because God comes and just controls the whole situation and makes it work out in the way that you want it to work out. It's gonna be because God's power works in you to forgive to love, to be humble, to be merciful, to bring peace. That's what God's power working in us actually looks like. A couple practical things for us. Not only do we need to start to rightly understand God's power. We also need to let go of some ways that we've, we've thought about God's presence working in our lives. For most of us, there's this way in which we, we've bought into this idea that whatever is happening to us, the good and the bad, that in some way, whatever is happening to us is a result of God making it so. And when things are going well, when life is actually working out for us, we love to hear this idea. Man, God is blessing me because I'm doing all the right things and all the right things are happening to me and for me. But it's an oppressive idea as soon as we start to believe that God is causing the bad and the destructive and the painful. And think about some of the ways in which we've We've used this idea, almost weaponized this idea against other people. You remember, <laughs> anybody remember the donut man? There were like a couple chuckles over here. The rest of you don't know the donut man? Life without Jesus is like a donut. There's a hole in the middle of your heart. Is this news to some of you? Oh my goodness. We've got to rethink catechism <laughs> all over again. So those of you who don't know, in the 90s, there's this really amazing guy who's called the Donut Man, had a great outfit on, and his buddy was this big donut, and they would share the gospel by being like, there's a hole in your heart, and only Jesus is going to fill it, and so long as you have that hole in your heart, you're just a big donut. Man, we got to bring back the Donut Man. But we've shared this idea that there is, that's the donut man. Man, lots of great fashion choices in our slides so far today. Between John Daly's pants and the donut man's overalls. 
That's the donut man. I came to Jesus as a result of the donut man. That's not entirely true. But we've shared this idea with one another, thinking that it's good news, that we just have this God-shaped hole in our lives, and God's the only one who can fill it. Who's ever heard this idea, right? Or maybe worse, don't show your hands. Who's said this to somebody else, right? So many of us are guilty of this kind of idea. And think about what this actually communicates. That as we start to assess in ourselves, what is that hole, what is that need? And we think that so long as God can fit in that space perfectly, then God is really present in our lives. But all that's happening in that exchange is that we're creating the idea of what we need and expecting God to fit into those places. And if he doesn't, then it's not God. What is this? This is idolatry. This is the way that idolatry works in our lives. Not just this idea of worshiping some other image. Idolatry is even creating in us the idea of what it is that we need God to do for us. Rather than a a kind of reckless openness to whoever God wants to be for us. However God wants to be present in our lives. We need to rethink our relationship with God's power and God's presence in our lives. Rowan Williams, my friend, he talks about this dynamic between suffering, between pain, between life just not going the way that you want it to, and how we, we faithfully, faithfully connect this idea to God's power in our lives. I wanna share this quote with you from Rowan Williams. This is, this is Jesus at the institution of, of the Eucharist. So he's sitting at a table with his friends, knowing what's about to happen, knowing that he's about to move into this, this moment of betrayal, this moment of pain, this moment of suffering, of abandonment. And he says, if Jesus gives thanks over bread and wine on the eve of his death, knowing what's ahead for him. If Jesus makes that connection between the furthest place away from God, which is suffering and death, and the giving and the outpouring of his Father, and if in his person he fuses those things together, then wherever we are, some connection between us and God is possible. Because it was true for Jesus, it can be true for us. That even when our lives lead us to the far country of pain and suffering, when things are not going the way we want them to, the power of God is staying connected to the promise of God the Father and to the goodness of his own life. That's what we celebrate every time we come to the table. We don't come to this table as people who are worthy of coming to it. We don't come to this table as a way of, of, of prize or reward at the end of our service. We come with our hands open in front of us, 
asking to receive the gift that God has to offer. And the gift that God is gonna offer us is a life that is broken open and poured out, but rooted and founded in God's goodness. This is what it is to be people of hope and not people of optimism. We're not called to be optimists. We are called to be people of hope. Because hope means that we can look around at the landscape of our lives and see the way in which everything is falling apart and trust in God's goodness that someday all things will be made right. That's what it is to hope. And here's the thing about the kind of hope that we find in Jesus, is that for Jesus, all of that hope is wrapped up on the other side of his death which means there are going to be some things in your life that just aren't gonna work out this side of eternity. But we can bear it. We can bear it because we, ha- we are people of hope. Last thing is that this means, and Aquinas' idea, This means that there are things that God is going to sustain you in that you wish God would deliver you from. And there are going to be things that God is going to deliver you from that you wish he would let you be sustained in. And the reason, the reason that God is gonna give you the power to endure, the power to be persistent, the power to sustain you the reason that God will deliver you when you'd rather be sustained. The reason that he's gonna sustain you, the reason he's gonna deliver you is to keep you from pride. It's to keep you from pride. Aquinas says there is nothing God will not sustain you from or deliver you in that won't protect you from becoming proud. And he says, because becoming proud, pride welling up in your life is the only thing that can keep you from being dependent on God's power. I remember being in eighth grade and we were at church camp. And for those of you who are familiar with church camp, you know these are like pretty emotionally charged kinds of moments, especially as an eighth grader. And I remember we're there on our last day and we've just been praying and worshiping for the last hour or so. And I remember being on my face in the back of the auditorium and I thought, Jesus, why don't you just come right now? Right now. I've got everything all figured out. (laughs) My faith is at its peak. It can only go down from here. Why don't you return? Because I have so much assurance that if you show up, I'm gonna get in. That's what was in me. God, just deliver me from all of this. And God says, no. I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach you what it is to sustain you when you want me to deliver you. And then think about the life of Jesus throughout the Gospels, that there are these moments when he realizes, oh, a few too many people are figuring all of this out. A few too many people are getting pretty close to what's happening here, and they want me to stay. 
And God says, no. Jesus gets in a boat and he runs to the other side, right? He runs to the other shore. He's constantly on the move because God is more concerned about you not becoming prideful than he is about sustaining you or delivering you. God will sustain you in the moments that you wish he would just deliver you and he's going to deliver you in moments that you wish you could just stay there a little longer. And it's all for the purpose of realizing God's power in your life is learning a kind of dependence on who God is. This is the way we can embrace suffering. This is the way we can embrace the problem of pain and brokenness in our world. It's not some kind of cliche Hallmark card, things are gonna get better, everything's gonna work out, God is in control. It's by saying we can stay connected to the power of God, trusting in God's goodness by becoming people of hope being open to the moments when God is going to sustain us, being open to the moments when God is going to deliver us. And we trust God's goodness.